Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on our latest online selections of important peer-reviewed research and reviews for Part 2 of our November-December 2020 issue. This month, we feature a new CME Academic Highlight section and two new interactive brief reports from cmeinstitute.com where you can participate and earn free CME credit. Let's get started. The COVID-19 pandemic and the resulting quarantine have affected everyone by now. But how are they transforming the delivery of mental health care? Go online to read a variety of perspectives on COVID-19, including first-person accounts from physicians in France, Spain, Italy, and India, as well as case reports and thought-provoking commentaries on how the pandemic is impacting psychiatry and mental health. These offerings are freely available online. Just visit us at psychiatrist.com and search on the keyword COVID-19. Standard medication treatments for post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, offer only moderate relief and leave many patients with persisting symptoms. Recognition of these limitations has led to recent downgrading of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, and serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, SNRIs, to second-line treatment for PTSD in most practice guidelines. Augmentation strategies with anticonvulsants, atypical antipsychotics, and other medications have not substantially improved outcomes. In this study, with funding from the U.S. Department of Defense, researchers investigated Riluzole, a glutamatergic modulator that is used to treat amyotropic lateral sclerosis. They sought to explore its effect as an augmentation treatment for PTSD in patients who had not achieved remission with SSRI or SNRI treatment. Targeting the glutamate system in PTSD is a novel strategy, with only limited agents investigated to date. Active-duty military members and veterans with PTSD related to combat deployment were randomized to treatment with either Riluzole or placebo over eight weeks. Riluzole was well-tolerated, with a common side effect of minor liver enzyme elevation and higher rates of trouble with concentration. Unfortunately, Riluzole did not demonstrate superior improvement in overall PTSD symptoms compared to placebo, nor did it significantly improve symptoms of depression, anxiety, or overall disability compared to placebo. However, there is some suggestion in the study findings that patients treated with Riluzole saw greater improvement in hyperarousal symptoms. Overall, this study did not demonstrate that Riluzole is effective as an augmentation treatment for PTSD, but it may be of use in a subset of patients for whom hyperarousal symptoms are a problem. Prescription stimulant misuse is a common problem in adolescents and young adults, but is poorly understood. Such misuse, whether of someone else's medication or one's own, may occur for a variety of reasons. 
Past research indicates that adolescents and young adults engage in prescription stimulant misuse for cognitive enhancement, such as to help studying, or for recreational purposes, such as to get high. With funding from the U.S. National Institute on Drug Abuse, researchers use data from the U.S. National Survey on Drug Use and Health to investigate how reasons for prescription stimulant misuse differ by age in adolescents and young adults, and how reasons or motives for misuse relate to other drug use and mental health. For individuals 14 to 24 or 25 years of age, Prescription stimulant misuse for cognitive enhancement reasons increased from 40.4% in 14-year-olds to 71.2% in 24- and 25-year-olds. Concurrently, stimulant misuse with any recreational motive decreased for those aged 14 to 24 or 25 years from over half to roughly one quarter. Across adolescents and young adults, any prescription stimulant misuse was associated with higher rates of other substance use, dsm 4 substance use disorder diagnosis, and mental health symptoms, including suicidal thoughts. Those with any recreational motives had the highest rates. Based on these results, the authors suggest that prevention programs should target recreational motives in adolescents and cognitive enhancement in young adults. Screening for any recreational motives can identify adolescents and young adults engaged in stimulant misuse who have particularly elevated rates of other substance use and mental health symptoms. Bipolar disorder can exhibit diverse symptomatology, particularly in its early stages and is often misdiagnosed. When incongruent psychotic symptoms appear in first-episode psychosis, bipolar disorder may be mistaken for schizophrenia. In this CME article, researchers from Spain attempted to identify predisposing factors that could help predict diagnosis of bipolar disorder versus schizophrenia. 335 participants with a first psychotic episode were followed for 12 months. At the end of this time period, 47 subjects had a confirmed dsm 4 diagnosis of bipolar disorder and 105 were diagnosed with schizophrenia. When the authors compared baseline features between the two groups, they found that subjects with a final diagnosis of bipolar disorder had a higher prevalence of family history of mood disorders, better baseline functioning, better cognitive performance, more manic symptoms, lesser negative symptoms, and shorter duration of untreated psychosis than subjects with a final diagnosis of schizophrenia. The authors note that identifying the clinical features that best differentiate between effective and non-effective psychosis, even in the early stages, can represent a starting point to guide research in biological markers. Visit us at psychiatrist.com to read the full article and earn CME credit. Loneliness is a major public health problem. It is a risk factor for not only adverse mental health, but also physical health outcomes, including cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's disease, and premature mortality. 
The health impact of loneliness is comparable to that of cigarette smoking and obesity, and there has been a growing concern about loneliness across all ages. However, the severity of loneliness differs across the lifespan. In this study, the authors examined risk and protective factors for loneliness and how they vary by age decade. Correlates of loneliness were examined through a large web-based survey of 2,843 participants aged 20 to 69 years from across the United States from April 2019 to May 2019. Participants completed the four-item UCLA Loneliness Scale, San Diego Wisdom Scale, and other scales measuring psychosocial variables. The positive psychological trait of wisdom was focused on, as it is a holistic, multidimensional human trait comprised of pro-social behaviors, emotional regulation, self-reflection, acceptance of diversion values, decisiveness, and social advising. The results revealed that loneliness levels were highest in the 20s and lowest in the 60s with another peak in the mid-40s, which is consistent with prior studies. Across all age decades, greater loneliness was associated with not having a spouse or partner, sleep disturbance, lower pro-social behaviors, and smaller social network. There were some differences in contributors to loneliness across age decades. Loneliness was uniquely associated with decisiveness in the 50s and memory complaints in the 60s. Additionally, social self-efficacy and symptoms of anxiety were not associated with loneliness in the 60s as they were in all other decades. The author suggested wisdom may be a unique aspect of addressing chronic loneliness. Differential predictors at different decades suggest a need for a personalized, nuanced prioritizing of prevention and intervention targets. People in sexual minority groups tend to experience more childhood adversity, such as emotional abuse or neglect, than heterosexual individuals. This excess stress in childhood may impact mental health later in life. As adults, sexual minorities are more likely to have substance use disorders like alcohol or tobacco use disorders or mental health disorders such as anxiety or mood disorders. In this CME article, researchers with funding from the National Institutes of Health used data from over 36,000 U.S. adults to investigate the prevalence and relationships of adverse childhood experiences substance use disorders, and mental health disorders among heterosexual and sexual minority adults. The authors found that adverse childhood experiences were most prevalent among sexual minority adults, especially bisexual-identified men and women. The majority of bisexual adults who had high levels of adverse childhood experiences also had comorbid substance use and mental health disorders. The authors advise healthcare providers to be aware that sexual minority adults report higher rates of both childhood adversity and comorbid substance use and mental health disorders than heterosexual adults. Knowing these disparities, High levels of adverse childhood experiences among sexual minority patients 
should alert clinicians to the increased likelihood of comorbid substance use and mental health disorders and potentially the need to involve health professionals who can treat these disorders. Similarly, individuals who present with substance use disorders should be screened for childhood adversity and referred to trauma-informed treatment as appropriate. To read this article in its entirety, visit us at psychiatrist.com and earn CME credit. Patients who report excessive daytime sleepiness may have narcolepsy. Unfortunately, individuals with narcolepsy frequently encounter a long delay from symptom onset to the time of diagnosis, meanwhile experiencing significant psychosocial disability. In this CME Academic Highlights section, supported by Harmony Biosciences, sleep experts Thomas Roth and John Winkleman discuss strategies for differential diagnosis and review the evidence on treatment options. Visit psychiatrist.com to read this academic highlights and earn free CME credit. From our CME Institute this month, we have two new interactive CME activities. Although some delusions and hallucinations are harmless, the effects of dementia-related psychosis can include increased medical costs, care partner burden, and nursing home placement. When you treat patients with dementia-related psychosis, do you evaluate the burden on their care partners too? If they feel discomfort, fear, or depression, how would you help them? In this CME brief report, supported by Acadia, you can learn from an expert about assessment tools, coping strategies, and techniques to help care partners manage the impact of dementia-related psychosis. Patients may need to take antipsychotic medications long-term, but if they are fearful about developing abnormal movements, they can become non-inherent. Clinicians may perceive the risk of tardive dyskinesia differently than patients do. In this CME brief report, supported by Neurocrine Biosciences, Dr. Andrew Nirenberg explains how risk probabilities are frequently misinterpreted and offers resources and strategies for communicating risk to your patients. To read these brief reports and earn free CME credit, visit us at cmeinstitute.com. It is well established that women with psychotic and mood disorders are at greater risk of experiencing psychiatric symptoms during pregnancy. Some clinicians avoid use of long-acting injectable antipsychotics in these patients due to concerns about safety. But is this hesitation supported by existing research? In a recent ASCP Corner article that is freely available online, the author highlights important points for clinicians to consider in the decision-making process. In a recent installment of his clinical and practical psychopharmacology column that is freely available online, Dr. Andrade examines a role for gabapentin in reducing alcohol consumption in a specific subpopulation of alcohol use disorder patients, those with high alcohol intake and high levels of withdrawal symptoms. In another column, Dr. Andrade looks at the demonstrated link between gestational exposure to antidepressants and risk of autism and ADHD. 
A recent study showed maternal depression as a risk factor, but intriguingly, paternal depression was also a risk factor. Both columns discussed their respective topics with an insightful view to the impact that study methodology has on our interpretation of research findings. In closing, be sure to visit us online at psychiatrist.com to view the newest online offerings from Part 2 of the November-December 2020 issue, and at cmeinstitute.com to explore interactive activities and earn free CME credit. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.